Scripture passage for this morning's message is taken from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 16. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals, whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the camp in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a praise, a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let's pray together. O oh God, how we long for our lips and our lives to be pleasing to you as they praise you, as they display your worth on Sunday morning in corporate worship and all through the week in lives of sacrificial love, sharing and doing good. So now come and teach this church, I pray, what it is to worship. Lord, define us, I pray, by our worship with lips and with life. Make this text a reality at Bethlehem, I pray. And to that end, help me to unfold your vision for us and this text. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Three weeks ago, I tried to begin to unfold for you the vision that I think the elders have from the Lord concerning the future of our life together. We called it Treasuring Christ Together, and we put it in that big sheet of paper that we handed out three weeks ago. If you didn't get one or you are not familiar with what I'm talking about and you would like to know, go to the church website, bbcmpls. .org, and you can read the whole thing there. It's a vision 
of Bethlehem and perhaps for other churches that we be building our growth as a church not primarily by centralization in one place, namely here downtown, but rather by multiplication through congregations and campuses and church plants. The implications of this vision are huge for us. Let me mention several before I move into the text. One, we now take very seriously and long-term the North Campus, and I encourage all of us to be praying, and this includes the us downtown, to be praying that God, perhaps through this word right now, this morning, would put it in the heart of someone to, to come to us and say, here's a place and we'll give it to you. Or here's a place and they're just emptying somewhere toward the north. I don't know how far it should be. The prayer that I would pray is, the, is to use the words of Tim Johnson, the chairman of our elders, who, when he posed the question, what site should we look for? He said, the site that sustains and advances the momentum of what God is doing north. That's a good answer. The site that sustains and advances the momentum. There's a lot of momentum north. It's amazing to me that God put it in the hearts of a thousand people not to be down here anymore on the weekends. That's a remarkable thing. That's no small gift to this church that the vision happened before we put it on paper. And I praise God for it. So be praying for that huge implication. Here's a second one. It implies a Saturday night service, as I've already said, and would encourage you, all of the downtown people, the second service people and the first service people downtown, consider migrating to Saturday night at 5.30. The reason that's crucial for the vision is that's where I will always be preaching live and the recording will be made that will make the other part of the vision work. Because that's what will be shown every other week on the downtown and the north sites starting next weekend. So that's an essential component to the way the present vision is unfolding for multiplication and not centralization. So pray that that Saturday night service will be a powerful, God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated, soul-saving, saint-sanctifying, joy-producing, justice-advancing service, I hope, like all the other services at Bethlehem. I'm excited about it. It will change my weekly life significantly, but I'm excited about that too. Third implication. This vision will require a significant change of mindset for more and more people at Bethlehem. And the mindset that I have in mind is the mindset shift from settlers to sojourners. We are wired Virtually all of us, there are a few wonderful exceptions, but most of us are wired to settle in a place and be comfortable, like it, wear it, become familiar with it, and we don't like change, 
and we don't want to move. And that's what I would call the settler mindset. It's not an evil mindset. However, if neighborhoods, networks of unbelieving people, and nations are to be reached, the settler mindset in many people must be replaced by the sojourner mindset. We must loosen ourselves from the sense that we're on planet Earth to settle in, be at home, get comfortable, stay in a place. If that's our main creature mindset on planet Earth, we won't do God's kingdom purposes as a church. Many of us, more and more people, have to take on a semi-nomadic mindset. I think the Apostle Peter would probably just call it a Christian mindset because he says in 1 Peter 2.11, I beseech you, just talking to Christians, I beseech you as aliens and exiles on the earth. That's our fundamental identity. Our citizenship is in heaven. We don't have a city here that lasts. Our city is there. We don't have a home here that lasts. Our home is there. We don't have a security here that lasts. Our security is there. That cuts Christians loose to be very radical, loving, risk-taking, mobile, semi-nomadic people. And if we are to grow by multiplication rather than centralization the mindset will have to change. It, we have to become more like our missionaries. Don't we admire our missionaries? We love to put them in front of us and send them out. We admire it. And why do we admire this? It's because we all need to develop a mindset of sojourners and exiles and movers. We won't all go to Pakistan. We won't all go to Thailand. And we won't all go to Indonesia. But we might go across town. We might go across the street. We might even change jobs. We might even move from one neighborhood to another. A church that grows merely by centralization and familiarity fits the settler's mindset. And a church that is planning to grow by multiplication toward unfamiliarity will have to change that mindset. So, those are three of the implications that Treasuring Christ together imply. However, these changes do not demolish the essence of what we cherish as Bethlehem. And let me mention four things that they do not demolish. And the fourth one is from the text, and we'll spend some time unpacking with regard to worship. Number one, Treasuring Christ together, growing by multiplication of campuses, congregations, churches, does not demolish our mission statement, which defines this church. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ. This vision of treasuring Christ together does not demolish it, it embodies it and expresses it. Picture this, if a great awakening happened in the Twin Cities, as happened several times in our country, and tens of thousands of unbelievers were drawn into the kingdom, centralization as a way of doing church would end, and we would be compelled 
to cope with growth by multiplication. It could not be handled any other way. If 3,000 people came to Christ through the influence of this church on a Pentecostal glory day, we might be ready with treasuring Christ together. If God does treasuring Christ together, which is my whole mindset here, my whole mindset is not to be taken off guard by the blessing of God. My mindset is expect the blessing of God. Expect something extraordinary to happen in the Twin Cities, of which we'll be just a little part. And when it happens, if we can have a mindset of semi-nomadic, decentralized, multiplying of congregations and campuses and churches, we would be in a position then to bless the movement rather than be caught off guard and trapped by it, hoping we had a 10,000-person sanctuary instead of a 5,000-person sanctuary. It will never do. Every big sanctuary is building for obsolescence, including this one. If God blesses, and don't we want him to bless? I mean, the mindset that wants churches to stay small, that is, not to grow by winning more and more people, is an unbiblical mindset. The second thing that treasuring Christ together does not demolish is it doesn't demolish our broad and deep doctrinal commitments expressed in the TBI, the Bethlehem Institute, affirmation of faith. Rather, it is built on it and we are defined by these doctrinal truths. More than ever... I am committed, more than ever, I am committed to defining Bethlehem in all of our expressions doctrinally by the TBI affirmation of faith. Not probably a perfect affirmation of faith. No, you can strike the word probably. Not a perfect affirmation of faith, but one we believe is biblically faithful. It seems like every time I get a raft of magazines each month in my house, one of them has an article in which American evangelicalism is warned about its growing doctrinal superficiality and shallowness and indifference. It seems like every month there's something like that. For example, the Christianity Today that just showed up in my house this week has a review of the book by... Uh, Alan Wolf called The Transformation of American Religion. Here are a couple of nuggets from the review. The cultural success of evangelicalism is its greatest weakness. Now, my paraphrase of that is numbers give the illusion of substance. Anybody can get numbers with the right band and the right number of stories. Numbers give the illusion of substance. Another quote. Doctrinal ignorance is one feature of the American religion that amazes Wolf the most. Now here's a catch. Stressing doctrinal identity today in this atmosphere in America will bring you two kinds of criticism. One, and they come from within the church. One, the criticism of being divisive. 
And the other is the criticism of being non-relational. People hear doctrine, they hear cold, non-relational, non-loving people, and others hear splinter, division, and so on. For those who see beyond this generation and look out maybe 80 years, doctrinal definition is simply not an option if you love people 80 years from now. Because there will be no unity, Christian unity. There will be no Christian relationships. There will be no Christian mission in 80 years without clear doctrinal Biblical identity. So that second aspect of Bethlehem is expressed in treasuring Christ together, not threatened by it. Third, treasuring Christ together does not demolish church as an experience of deep, lasting, personal relationships. It demands it. As I tried to show two weeks ago when we talked about small groups, and as I stress again now, that I hope you will find your way into. There is nothing in the New Testament, mark this, there is nothing in the New Testament that says big church is good, and there is nothing in the New Testament that says little church is good. What you find in the New Testament is loving relationships are good, and there are many little churches where they don't happen And there are many big churches where they do happen. The issue is not in treasuring Christ together. The issue is not about being big and it's not about being little. It's about spreading genuine Christian worship and genuine Christian love through multiplication rather than centralization. And mark this, we are aware and I am keenly aware we will never be perfect at this and always be criticized for not being as loving as we should. I fully expect that till the day I die. I'm an imperfect husband. I'm an imperfect father. I'm an imperfect pastor. We're an imperfect church. Some people will always be not loved as much as they should and some people will be basking in the best love they've ever known. So just go ahead and keep it coming, both the encouragements and the criticisms, and we will just keep working as hard as we can. And I would just ask one thing, pray and pitch in. Relationships are about solutions, not just identifying problems. And you are the solution, and we are the solution together. So let's just work on this in a lot of ways. And the last thing now, which is the sermon I want to preach, this has all been introduction. Treasuring Christ together does not demolish the worship life that we cherish together. And so I'm going to spend two weeks now, the rest of this message and next Saturday and Sunday on what unites us in worship. What is the worship life of Bethlehem? Here's where this is coming from. I'll just give you the the, the biographical origin of this message. The worship leaders of the north, the downtown, and the Saturday night, and the Wednesday night connection met on, I forget what day it was, this week, Tuesday morning, 8 o'clock. And we asked ourselves, how okay is it for downtown to look different from north? 
And north to look different from Saturday. And Saturday to look different from Wednesday. Because each of these three worship leaders are different kinds of people. How okay is that? If it's okay, which it is, then what unites us? What's the common thing running? What can you say? That's Bethlehem. That's the big question. That's what these messages are about. What unites us in worship across congregations and campuses and church plants? It's crucial for two reasons to ask this. One, our ultimate destiny is authentic worship from the heart. That's why you were created. And two, churches, including this one, are largely defined by the ethos, the atmosphere, the tone, the spiritual dynamic of the Sunday morning event, usually called corporate worship. And therefore, it's crucial that we think about it. So now let's go to our text. Hebrews 13, and I'm only going to look at verses 14, 15, and 16. And what I plan to do in the remaining time this morning is give the overview of these three verses, the structure of them, and then next week we're going to take them apart piece by piece, phrase by phrase, and unpack them for our life together. My prayer is that what we see in these three verses will mark us as a worshiping church more and more. Here's a phrase that I want you to have in your mind when you leave. I'm going to have you say it out loud with me so that you will know the main phrase I wanted you to take away. And the phrase is seamless sacrifice. Seamless sacrifice. So say that phrase. Seamless sacrifice. Let's say it again. Seamless sacrifice. Okay. Now... I get that out of this text, and I'll show you where in just a minute. But now that you've got the phrase, that may be all you can remember. I'm going to go ahead and build it out and put something on the front and something on the back. So on the front, I'm going to say visible worship is seamless sacrifice of lips and life. Visible worship is a seamless sacrifice of lips and life. Now, I'm going to show you that from verse 15, lips, verse 16, life. And I'm going to add one more phrase, which I'm going to get from verse 14. And so here's the whole sentence. Some of you will be amazing and maybe remember the whole sentence. Visible worship is a seamless sacrifice of lips and life carried by Christian hedonism. Okay, let's go to the text and see where I get that sentence. Verse 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Every phrase in there, seven of them, Beg for explanation and exaltation, and that will happen next week. Only one thing I want you to see from this verse this morning, and it's this. Worship is, at least, not exhaustively, but at least a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips. A sacrifice of praise that is the fruit 
of lips. That's the first piece or part of the seamless cloth that I'm calling the seamless sacrifice. These words are sung and spoken. That's what lips do. They sing and they speak. Verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now notice, the word sacrifice is here, just as the word sacrifice is in verse 15. That's not an accident. We must note that link between the two verses. Such sacrifices, and it's referring now not to the lips anymore in verse 16, but to what? It's the sacrifices of doing good and sharing what you have. This is what I'm calling life. You got lips, sacrifice of lips in verse 15, and you've got sacrifice of life in verse 16. And the sacrifice is the kind of sacrifice that you make in a temple. Don't don't think sacrifice like I'm laying down my life here. I'll come back and expound that next week. But this is like you're taking an offering, a lamb or a bull or a pigeon into the temple. That's the analogy. And you're making a sacrifice on the altar. And the sacrifice on the altar here is the work of lips in praise and the work of life in love. So you got lip worship in verse 15 and you got life worship in verse 16. And that's where I'm getting this phrase seamless sacrifice, because I think the writer is thinking of, of life as the overflow of our mouths and the overflow of our hands and our feet and our eyes and our ears in love, all of one piece in worship. We show the value of God through Christ by what we say about him, and by the way we act, demonstrating that our lives treasure Christ more than we treasure possessions. The way you worship God with your life is by holding your possessions so loosely that you can show the value of Jesus over the value of things by sharing your things more lavishly than if he were not your treasure. That makes sense? See how that works? You demonstrate the value of Jesus by lavishly sharing things and not accumulating, not saying I must have a bigger this and a more of that and more of this and more of this. But as you get more because you're a good hard worker, more goes out and more goes out and more goes out and your joys abound because you've learned love is worship. Because it displays the worth of Jesus. If Jesus is not your treasure, money or house or family or health will be your treasure. And then it will show to the world that you are working for those things just like they are. And Jesus will get no honor from that. But Jesus will be shown as really valuable if he's your treasure and frees you to be lavish with your life. Your time, your money, your house, your clothes, your car. Just... It's not mine, it's his, and I'm just letting it go. And people will look at that and say, hmm, there must be another treasure in your life if you don't hold on to the one I like. And that's how he gets worship from your life. So, visible worship 
is a seamless sacrifice of lips and life, and now I'm adding, carried by Christian hedonism. Now, first of all, what in the world is that? And second, where in the world do you see that in this text? So first, what is it? And then I'll show you where I see it. Christian hedonism, and if you don't like the phrase, pick another one while I'm talking. It's, it's the conviction that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. He is made to look more glorious as my satisfaction in him rises. Secondly, Christian hedonism draws out the implication from that, that I should be pursuing the maximization of my satisfaction in God with blood earnestness in all of my life. My delights in God are not optional. They are essential and to be pursued day and night with all my might because God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. And Christian hedonism thirdly draws out the implication that therefore my satisfaction in God is the essence and root of authentic worship. Not the totality of it, but the essence and root of it. If it isn't there, the essence is not there, and the plant will wither on the visible side. That's what Christian hedonism is. Now let me show you where I see it in the text. Look at verse 14. Here on earth we have no lasting city. But we seek a city that is to come. Now that statement is not merely a statement of fact. It is a statement of heart. We seek. Do you? Do you? Is your heart... Going out to that city, grasping for that city, reaching for that city, drawing that city down now as much as possible and saying, that's my treasure. The city where there is no more sun or moon because the Lord God Almighty is the sun and his Christ is the moon and he is the temple and He's the ground on which I walk and the air I breathe in that city. Give me that city at any cost. That's what's in that verse. And you can trace it back because that same verse is over and over again from 10.32 to 11.24 to 12.2 to 13.32. 13 and following. It's the same thing. There is a great and beautiful future, namely God himself shining in the new Jerusalem, which will be our portion and our satisfaction, streaming back through Jesus Christ by his spirit. Now we taste it. We've discovered that for which we were made. We know where joy is to be found. And now we can rest in that and reach out for more of it. That's Christian hedonism in verse 14 
And here is the crucial thing to see, the link between verse 14 and 15. I hope it's in your Bible. It's the word then or the word therefore at the beginning of verse 15. Note it. Through him then or through him therefore let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Get it? Verse 14 is true. Therefore, verse 15 is true. The reality of joy in the city that is coming, whose son is God, is true, is my reality. Therefore, the reality of verses 15, and I would add verse 16, because they're so woven together by this word sacrifice, these two verses are real because that is real. That is what I meant by saying Christian hedonism is the essence and root of authentic worship. We have worship of lips in verse 15. We have worship of life in verse 16. And both of them are said to flow from and be the inference of, I want the city more than I want anything. If you want to know what's very near the essence of Bethlehem Baptist Church worship, that's it. It's the link between verse 14 on the one hand and 15 and 16 on the other hand. If you don't get that, you don't get Bethlehem. We seek a city which is to come. Our hearts are in heaven. Jesus is our portion. Jesus is our treasure. Jesus is our satisfaction. Jesus is our reward. We want to see that great sun called the glory of God shining and filling that city. We want to be caught up in it and therefore our mouths will be filled with praise now and our lives will be laid down in lavish sharing now because this world is not our home. We've got another other treasure. That's the essence of this church and its worship both on Sunday morning and Monday morning in seamless sacrifice. So I draw out the conclusion, visible worship is a seamless sacrifice of lips, verse 15, and life, verse 16, carried by Christian hedonism, verse 14. Now, let me try to make more clear, let's be as plain as I can be, how the fruit of lips and the sharing of our possessions and the doing of good, 15 and 16, flow from or are like the flower on the root of Christian hedonism. How is it that being satisfied with God instead of the things of the world How is it that seeking our treasure in him rather than seeking our treasure in the comforts and fun and leisure and power and esteem in this world creates and carries seamless worship of lips and life? Well, it's real obvious probably to most people, but it's good to say it. 
Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, the lips, speak. Right? Jesus said that. So if the heart is abundant with the city that is to come, the treasure that is Jesus, the joy that is Christ, the beauty that is all that he is for us, then this mouth is going to speak it, Jesus said. The the fruit is going to be born on that root. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is the fruit. The lips bear fruit of what's in here. And if what's in here is verse 14, we seek a city. If you seek this city, if Wall Street is what you seek, clothes and appearance are what you seek, security in a nice house is what you seek, family is what you seek, Then the lips will be filled with Wall Street. The lips will be filled with family. The lips will be filled with leisure and appearance and endless discussions and who knows what junk. But if your heart is brimming with the surpassing value of Jesus Christ above all earthly things... The lips will bear that fruit. Songs, sermons, prayers, conversations, poems, testimonies, phone calls, lips translated into emails, and other types of expressions of overflow that God is good. We love to do it on Sunday morning. The overflow of lips, but there's nothing in verse 15 that restricts it to Sunday morning. I'm just saying that's part of it. The lips are moving all week long, and what are they moving with? We'll testify to whether verse 14 is our life. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. Therefore, the lips overflow in praises. Same thing now, seamlessly. Here's the, this is what I want you to see. How the, the Christian hedonist heart not only yields lip work, lip worship, but Christian hedonist heart yields life work, life worship. And it's so obvious why. If my treasure is Christ, then things diminish in their importance. And when they diminish, they're so easy to let go. Which is what verse 16 says they're supposed to do. Share, 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 share. Make your life one vehicle, one channel. You want God to bless your work? Open the faucet at the other end of the pipe. And just let it go. Take risk. Never Ever, ever have I heard a Christian testify that they wrecked their life by being too generous. I've never, ever once heard that. There may have been some crazy person here or there who, who uh, got on the welfare rolls by giving too much money away. I've never heard of one. And if you know of one or are one, you come to me and I'll help you out personally. If generosity is your problem, count on me. 
And so it's not hard to see how the fabric is seamless, is it? The heart that treasures Christ, the city to come, rather than things in the city on earth, is going to yield worship of lips and worship of life. That is, it's going to make Jesus look good in our words. It's going to make Jesus look good as our treasure by not having, not, not harboring and hoarding treasures on the earth. Well, I think we're just about finished. This is what I pray will mark Bethlehem's worship. Saturday night, Sunday downtown, Sunday up north, Wednesday night in that package of worship before we pray together on Wednesday at the Connection, small group worship. Notice I haven't said one thing about guitar versus organ, hymn versus worship song, loud versus soft, pensive versus energetic. Not a word yet, because none of that is essential. Take it or leave it. None of that is essential. This is essential. But I'll be back to some of those things next week. Let me close like this. Visible worship is the seamless sacrifice of lips and life carried by Christian hedonism. So today, the issue is this. Is your heart a worshiping heart? This is where we're going to end. Just a personal introspective analysis of our own condition this morning as we close. Is your heart a heart of worship? Does your heart treasure Christ above all? Does your heart seek a city where God is the sun and Christ is the moon and and the glory of God is the light and his grace is the air we breathe? You long for that city? Do you say with the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain? Do your lips and does your life make Jesus Christ look to other people more precious than anything? Let me ask that again. Do your lips and does your life of love Make Jesus Christ look more precious to you than anything. Let's pray. If your answer to those questions, as I think probably most of us, if we were honest, would have to say, yeah, a lot of times I have to answer no to those questions. And some of you may have to say, I always answer no to those questions because I'm not even a believer yet. I would just invite you to, in your heart, pray with me this prayer. O oh God, in Jesus' name, incline my heart to your glory. Waken my slumbering affections and give me life. Open my eyes to your perfections and beauty. Set my heart on fire for you, Lord. Unite my divided soul with one holy passion. 
satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love and weave in me a seamless sacrifice of lips and life. Amen.